start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we just praise and thank you for the gift of this evening. Lord, I thank you that you have allowed us to come here tonight to discuss the beauty of human love, the ways that you've created us as man and woman to offer ourselves as gifts to those around us. We entrust to your fatherly heart all of our questions, our desires, our fears, especially in the area of love. And we ask, Lord, that tonight's words might be a night of encouragement and healing and hope for each of us in our own hearts, in our families, and in our vocations. As we say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Awesome. Um, so if you're just coming in, please feel free to grab some notes if you want them for further study and prayer, should you desire. So at the top of the page, on page one, I have for you, again, the outline that I've basically had up here the whole time. And the bolded section is the section that we are doing this evening. Um, so what we've talked about, again, just to review, is man and woman as we existed in the beginning. So before the fall, without original sin, we were able to see each other in freedom and we were naked without shame. Then as a result of the fall and on this side of original sin, we... Um, can no longer see each, other, see each other in that freedom, right? But there's a way in which God has entered into the history um, that we're not naked without shame in that fullness, but there's an echo of it in that through the gift of grace, which God gives to us through the sacraments, we can cultivate in the interior heart of hearts that each of us has um, a vision that we can see more clearly, that we can more clearly cultivate and see with clarity the gift that is the other person in front of us. Um, and then we talk about eschatological man, which is a fancy word for where we're going, right? The eschaton, the end times, that at the end of time, because time will end it too as a created reality, uh, we will be together, the goal is in heaven, which means to be with God himself. Um, and that we will have no more need of signs, like marriage is a sign pointing to the Trinity and the love of the Trinity. Um, because we will have reached the ultimate fulfillment. We've reached the prize. Um, again, you will have full knowledge and awareness and love for all the people on this side of heaven that you have loved. It's not like they disappear or like you don't care about them. It's not that. But it's, as we talked about at one point, imagine it like husband and wife on this side of heaven. You're sort of like holding hands, like facing each other and like also moving towards the Lord. Whereas in heaven, it's like you're holding hands, but you're looking forward together. Your gaze is upon the one for whom you've been created for eternity. Um, and then we talked about the sacrament, so specifically marriage, um, and that if marriage is a sacrament, so easily translated a sacrament, is anything that makes visible an invisible reality, but also it affects with grace the reality that it shows. So marriage is a sacrament, um, which is a really big deal and should give all of us a lot of hope, meaning God does not expect you to just show up and to love another person and to converge your worlds together. And like just figure it out and by your willpower, try to love them as God loves them. Like, have you thought about that? Like, that's crazy, really, in my opinion. That's really hard. So how about we try to love like God loves by being given the strength of God, um, which is called grace. 
which you receive in a particular way in all the sacraments and in a special way in this case through marriage. Um, today, what we're going to talk about is, um, you can see it bolded, but the language of the body, the reality of the sign. We're going to talk about two books in the Bible. One is called the Song of Songs, and the other one is called the Book of Tobit. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the church's teaching against contraception. Um, and so clearly we don't have that much to cover. So, you know, you'll be bored in five minutes. No, so we have a lot to cover and we don't have, you know, more than 55 minutes left. Um, I'm going to keep it here. I have quotes here for you to pray with, but I do want to remind you, each of you are here for a reason. I'm not saying all of this because I expect you to take everything I'm saying and to understand every word. But each of you, I believe, the Lord wants to give you a gift. Whatever sticks out to you, that's your gift. You take that gem to prayer, right? So don't feel like you have to swallow everything. I'm not trying to like put a fire hose in your face. Sometimes it might feel like that. But that's not the intention. The intention is like, I'm giving you a little cup of water, take little sips, and then keep moving, right? Um, but these notes can help you that you can pray with it after. And I do encourage you to do that. This is something that can, it's gonna continue to develop in your life and in your understanding. Um, and I've studied these things for years, but it doesn't mean that I completely understand it. And also, just because I study it doesn't mean I live it out perfectly either. I don't, right? We are all in a process of conversion. Conversion is an ongoing, lifelong process. That's how we're called to holiness. So to look at the paper, um, I had this on the notes from two talks ago, but I think it's important enough that I kept it. So just to kind of reorient us to what we're talking about, when we talk about the theology of the body, on page one it says, the fact that theology also includes the body should not astonish or surprise anyone who is conscious of the mystery and reality of the incarnation. Through the fact that the word of God became flesh, the body entered theology. That is, the science that has divinity for its object, I would say, through the main door. So many human beings and so many Christians search in marriage for the fulfillment of their vocation. So many want to find in it the way of salvation and holiness. On the road of this vocation, how indispensable is a deepened consciousness of the meaning of the body in its masculinity and its femininity. How necessary is an accurate consciousness of the spousal meaning of the body, of its generative meaning given that all that forms the content of the life of the spouses must always find its full and personal dimension in shared life and behavior and in feelings. Contemporary or biophysiology can offer much precise information about human sexuality. Nevertheless, the knowledge of the personal dignity of the human body and of sex must still be drawn from other sources. A particular source is God's own word, which contains the revelation of the body, the revelation that goes back to the beginning. How significant it is that in his answer to all these questions, Christ orders man to return in some way to the threshold of his theological history. He orders him to place himself at the boundary between original innocence and happiness and the inheritance of the first fall. By doing so, does he not want to say that the way in which he leads man, male and female, in the sacrament of marriage, namely the way of the redemption of the body, must consist in retrieving this dignity? in which the true meaning of the human body, its meaning as personal and of communion is fulfilled at the same time. I know that was a lot of words. What did that mean? So what he's trying to say is a lot of people are looking at Christian marriage and they understand that in some way this is their call to holiness, that this is how they're gonna become a saint. But in what way is that possible? And when John Paul II is trying to say that it's not something apart from the body, but the body is the key 
to all of this. Because again, I say this a billion times, but it's worth repeating because we know it, but we don't really get it, right? Like I cannot be me uniquely as Sarah Denny apart from the gift of my body. You cannot be who you are apart from the gift of your body. There is no body that exists before or after that is quite yours. Number one, in a biological sense, but number two, because you are a body and a soul composite, right? You're integrated as a whole person. Um, there are so many things that can be said in a biophysical sense. We can go to biology class, we can go to anatomy and physiology class, and we can learn a lot about sex, sexuality, right? All of those things in terms of science. John Paul II is saying, while that is important, he doesn't deny that. He's saying that's not the only aspect that we have to look at. In fact, if we stop there, we're going to miss something. And if you think about the culture, though, and the way that the culture views sexuality, the culture really does stop there. Right? For the culture, sex and sexuality is all about pleasure. It's not about love, like, oh, this gift between two persons, let us converge our worlds and start a family, right? It's more so about like, what can I get from you and what can you get from me and maybe we can make this deal. It's almost like a contract, right? Like, you give me this, I can give you this, and like, we can be on our merry-go-way, right? Whatever. So he's saying, not only is the body important because of all these things, that it's connected to a person, so a being that will exist for all of eternity, um, but that because Christ himself took on a body, right? He's fully divine, but he's also fully human. He says that theology entered through the main door. Like God himself entered through the main door by taking on humanity. And that marriage, you know, marriage is not just a gift, um, it's a task, right? It's an invitation. It's a, it's a project. It's a personal project for you for the rest of your life if you're called to this vocation um, that you give to the world. Like if you truly live out the graces that marriage as a sacrament offers you, it will affect the world. It has to. It can't not because that is what it was created to do and to be, right? Um, so your connection to that, again, isn't through the gift of your body. These first few quotes are just sort of a review for you. What does it mean whenever I talk about a communion of persons? I'm talking about authentic love, right? That love requires that there is an other that I give a gift of myself to, this other receives the gift, and it's a mutual communion, right? Um, John Paul II says, top of page two, human life is by its nature co-educational, and its dignity as well as its balance depends at every moment of history and in every place of geographic longitude and latitude on who she shall be for him and who he shall be for her. So this is not something, he's saying this is a really big deal. What he's not saying is that we should get stuck in our heads and like stress out about it all the time that we don't ever just live, right? You can do that. I've done that, right? We can really, really overthink these things. But keeping it simple, the gift is that you can come to a talk like this and you can listen and you can realize like, oh, how I act, offer the gift of myself for me uniquely as a woman, for you as a woman or as a man, right? That says something for the cosmos, for the whole world. Because if I'm a human person, which we all are, then we were given as custodians the gift of all of creation to serve it. And the best way in which we, who were made in the image and likeness of God, right, can image him to all of creation is in our choice to love, because God's identity is love. And love at the end of the day, as we keep saying, is always a choice. Sometimes it feels great and the choice is awesome. We're like skipping down the path and everything feels wonderful. 
Sometimes it doesn't feel great. Is the love any less with the emotions there or not there? No, love is a choice at the end of the day, right? Um, and it's beautiful regardless of the emotion or the feeling, though the emotions are wonderful and sometimes we have them, but it's also okay if you don't. Okay, I'll explain more as we go. Um, if you look at the part that's bolded in the middle of page two, he says that the words of Christ indicate the road toward a mature spontaneity of the human heart that does not suffocate its noble desires and aspirations, but on the contrary, liberates and helps them. Again, we've gone through this, but just to review, what he's saying is, is in the gift of marriage, um, the goal is that in man and woman offering themselves to each other, we all as human beings have experienced when our emotions and our body reacts in an attraction to a member of the opposite sex, right? Um, but he's saying is that even now at this age, right, you can cultivate in your heart an awareness that the people that you interact with are gifts, and so then how do you treat them, right? And how do you view them? He always goes back to the first step, which is the eyes of the heart. Do I look at the people around me and in my life as gifts to be respected and loved, or do I see them as objects for which I can get something out of them? or objects that I can obtain some kind of pleasure, right? To be clear, John Paul II is not saying that pleasure is bad. He's like, pleasure's so great. Literally, John Paul II is like, pleasure is awesome. God made it to be that way. Sexual, like intimacy, all of it is supposed to be pleasurable. God knew that. He made it that way. That's how it all works, right? What he's saying is don't stop there. Like, that's a beautiful part of it, but it's not the most beautiful part of it. Like, it's it's the way in which you get to the main goal, which the main goal is not pleasure. The main goal is union with a, another human person through which both of you, by way of your freedom, can choose to offer a whole gift of yourself. And from that communion of love, a whole other human person can come into existence that never before existed. And that that human person will live for all of eternity. Like, I know this is like something I say all the time, but y'all, this is a really big deal. We are the only creatures that God created that can choose with our will, right? That our sexuality is lived out in and through freedom. It's not just impulse, right? It's something deeper than that. And as we keep saying, right, freedom exists for the sake of love. It's not love exists for the sake of freedom. That flips it. If we say that, then it becomes license. Then it's Whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it with. No, this is, I love you so much that I offer to you the greatest gift I can offer, which is the gift of myself, in and through the gift of my freedom. Because the love of its force is not love, right? That's a counterfeit. But I, if I give my whole person to you, then I've laid down my freedom at your feet, right? And that's why he says, like, in Ephesians 5, like, this, your wife, like, now her body is your body, and vice versa. Your husband, like, his body is your own body. Like, because you, the two become one, quite literally. So he's saying that as you cultivate this inner freedom and in how you look at the people in your lives, right, and in marriage, you cultivate this inner freedom by seeing the other person as a gift. Spontaneity, like these, the movements of the heart, it becomes more mature. It starts to be less of a head game, right, and it starts to be more of a heart game. This, for the rest of our lives, is the longest distance, right, between the head and the heart. There's like songs written about it. There's poetry about it. Like I'm not doing it so beautifully at this moment, but you get the point. It's a very long distance from what I know intellectually and what I know in my heart of hearts. But grace, y'all, is like 
the superhighway, okay? It's the superpower, quite literally, actually. Yeah, literally. Um, that allows us to see, to love, to choose to know as God sees and loves and chooses and knows. He gives to us his heart if we ask him to, right? So um, these other quotes that I had from before, you know, he's just saying that, number one, Christ reveals man to himself. Number two, um, like I just said, the greatest gift you can offer is the gift of your freedom. Number three, this one is worth repeating. Um, It's the last big quote on page two, because our generation seems to forget this like every five seconds. Love consists of a commitment which limits one's freedom. It is a giving of the self, and to give oneself means just that, to limit one's freedom on behalf of another. Limitation of one's freedom might seem to be something negative and unpleasant, but love makes it a positive, joyful, and creative thing. Freedom exists for the sake of love. Man longs for love more than for freedom. Freedom is the means and love the end. So freedom is the means by which I get to love, but love is the ultimate goal. Our generation, culture, a lot of things around us, right, they would like us to think um, that any limit put on me is going to make me unhappy. It's going to keep me from becoming who I really want to be. What John Paul II is saying is only by limiting my freedom, meaning giving it to one person, one person alone, am I able to more clearly, most clearly imitate the sign, the love of God, which is a an authentic, full, total gift of self. And in that gift of love, I can most clearly image God to the rest of the world. You don't become less of a person by limiting your freedom and offering yourself to the one that God has for you, right? You become more of yourself because again, the key quote always is, man and woman can only find themselves through sincere gift of self, right? It's all about self-gift. If you remember anything about theology of the body, it's about self-gift which first requires that you realize that you are a gift. You are a gift, period. If you don't believe that, then that's the thing that you need to pray with when you lead this talk. Only when you start to appreciate that can you move forward from that space and then realize if I am a gift, then I am a gift worth offering in and through my freedom in love to another. And by respecting my own gift, I don't just offer it to anyone, right? I offer it when another has won my trust, right, by consistency, whatever, et cetera, right, that I, through my freedom, know to whom and when and how I offer the gift to myself in and through the gift of my body. Okay, so great job reviewing. Um, The last little part is that purity is like the eyes for seeing, and John Paul II said that purity is the glory of the human body before God. Our bodies are not just material, our bodies are literally temples of the Holy Spirit. You are the only creature that God has willed to allow himself to live within. Do you understand? God, like the Trinity, like God, who made everything, has chosen by virtue of our baptism to live and reside within each one of us, right? He lives within you. So what you do with your body, right, it's connected to the body of Christ at large, right? Um, having said all of that, now we can dive into the new part. I can't read to you these books in the Bible right now because we don't have time, but I, I don't know if all of you have read this and I realize like at your age, I was just delving into some of these things. So if you've never heard of it, there's two books in the Old Testament that you should all read. 
Number one, it's called the Song of Songs. It's a love poem, literally. Um, it's like a duet between the bridegroom and the bride. Number two, you should read the book of Tobit. Okay, if you've heard of the archangel Raphael, he's named in the book of Tobit. Um, I'll tell you more about each as we get to them. And then also there's an encyclical. Um, so it's like a really important church teaching. Um, there's many different encyclicals, but the one I recommend that you read is called Humanae Vitae. I'm speaking on all these things tonight, but all of you are smart enough to go to Google, type it in, and read it yourself. And if you have questions, I'm challenging you, go read the primary source, meaning read the actual document, meaning read the actual book of the Bible. If you're going to go read commentaries, I'm all about it, but I'd much prefer you don't read those until you actually read the content itself. I challenge you to do that because you're not dumb, okay? This happens every time. You're not dumb. You are smart human beings. Um, and also, God gives you a grace, I think, if you're looking for answers to these questions and you go into these books and you read them, he will give you grace to understand little by little by little. So I challenge you to do that. Some of the concepts that are going to be explored in the time that we have, um, words that are coming up constantly. John Paul II talks about the love between man and woman and their gaze for each other. He talks about mutual admiration. He talks about the gift of wonder. He talks about the gift of perennial attraction. He talks about the gift of openness. And he talks about the gift of an awareness of mutual belonging. Like he uses these words a lot. In reality, if you read the actual text of Theology of the Body, right, a series of audiences. So the Pope, every Wednesday, gives a general audience. Every Wednesday. So like yesterday he did in Rome. Over five years, John Paul II did that. And he delivered talks on the gifts of human love and sexuality. Over those five years, they compiled those talks into Theology of the Body, which is this book that's just this big. These last, like, 12 to 15 audiences, don't quote me on that number, but it's something like that. They were about the Song of Songs, and they were about the Book of Tobit. But they're very, very intimate, and so if you read these books, you'll know what I mean by intimate. Um, and he, in his wisdom, I think, if you read the actual audiences, on the left page is what he wrote and on the right page is what he said and a lot of the right page is like one line like he didn't say everything they call them the hidden talks because of this i think because there was a proper time for them to be revealed and it wasn't the time yet so i'm sharing with you like i read the left side of the page was everything he thought about it and i can only share with you bite-sized pieces but you can go in read the books of the bible yourself right and delve deeper into what he's saying so that's my challenge for you to start the quote I picked from the Song of Songs, it's bolded. It says, and this is the bridegroom, so the man, talking to the bride, the woman. He says, you are an enclosed garden, my sister, my bride, an enclosed garden, a fountain sealed. John Paul II says in response to this, these metaphors just read, an enclosed garden, a fountain sealed, reveal the presence of another vision of the same female eye who is master of her own mystery. We can say that both of these metaphors express the personal dignity of the woman who as a spiritual subject is in possession and can decide not only on the metaphysical depth, but also on the essential truth and authenticity of the gift of herself, inclined to that union which Genesis speaks of. The second sentence of the next paragraph, the sister bride is for the man, the master of her own mystery, as a garden enclosed and a fountain sealed. The language of the body rewrite in truth keeps pace with the discovery of the interior and viability of the person. At the same time, this discovery expresses the authentic depth of the mutual belonging of the spouses who are aware of belonging to each other, of being destined for each other. 
And it says in the Song of Songs, my lover belongs to me and I to him. What he's trying to say is, is that when man looks upon woman and by virtue of this scripture, there's several things that are said here. Number one, she's an enclosed garden. Number two, he first calls her his sister before he calls her his bride. And he's not saying like, oh, because you know, you're supposed to marry your sister. No, that's not what he's saying. Okay, but what he's saying is like, as a man, if you have a sister, first and foremost, you look upon the woman that is your sister biologically in your family with a pure gaze. There's a natural predisposition towards love. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, so he's saying that's the start of every love. We're coming from this space of purity, that this, all women, if you were a man, and all men, if you're a woman, they're your sister or your brother in humanity, in the one human family. And this is also where he talks about that at the basis of any authentically deep romantic relationship, there must be friendship, right? At the end of the day, we all want to marry our best friend. You know what I mean? Like friendship, because you can trust this other, because to love is to will the good of the other, right? It's not about what I can get from you. It's not about what you can get from me. It's about I want what's best for you, and together we are on this journey. So he's saying that woman, in this context, man sees her that she is a mystery, and that she is a master of her own mystery. All the women in the room. First and foremost, right, the reality is that, and this is what I mean by you have to understand the gift. You are the one who is the master of your mystery, which is why it's such an offense if a woman or a man's freedom is ever gone against, right? That's a really bad thing, okay? Because you're taking from someone a gift that only they can offer you in freedom, right? That's why that's not love. Force is not love. Um, he's saying, though, he's, as this encouragement, as this call, that what's happening is that there's this wonder and this fascination. This book of the Bible is showing us in like a story, in a poem in a sense, what Genesis 2 was trying to reveal to us. When Adam awakens and there's Eve that has been created as a helpmate, remember, what does he say? Like, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's a statement of wonder, a statement John Paul II says of enchantment, right? Wonder at the gift and the beauty of who has been entrusted to him. He sees that she is like him, but he is not, she is not the same as him, right? There's an equality, but there's a complementarity. There's a difference which is by way of which they come together. That's what makes it possible. Um, and so this whole belonging, he's saying like, by virtue of freedom, right? I give the gift of myself to another and vice versa. My lover belongs to me and I to him. You have entrusted your whole self to this person. It is meant to be a full, total gift, right? Love is not meant to be in pieces, right? I recommend listening to a song um, called Garden. You gonna write that down? Garden, I don't know. I used to make my friends in college listen to it. I love it. Um, it's by Matt Marr. Um, M-A-T-T-M-A-H-R, if you don't know who that is, that's fine. Mayor might make more sense. I call him that more. Um, what is the name of the song about the Song of Songs? Does anybody remember? Oh, I'm forgetting his name. Matt Marr. He sings with Audrey Assad. Oh, I'll remember five minutes after the talk is finished. Anyway, Google Matt Marr, Song of Songs, song. Okay. Um, it's worth it. So, moving on, he says that in this interior necessity, in the dynamic of love, 
It is impossible though, right? Think about it. As much as we can get super, 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 super close to each other, even physically in marriage, I still can never be fully possessed by another person. Do you understand? I'm still me. I'm still in full possession of the mystery and of the gift. So he's saying, then therefore we have to somehow, there's a limit there that even in the most passionate embrace between man and woman within marriage, eros is what they call it, the passion, there's a limit. How do we go beyond that? And the answer he says is through the word agape, which is a love that is the clearest love, right, of the Holy Spirit. Eros is also of the spirit, but the deeper love, agape, is the sacrificial component, right? Christ, in offering his body, right, there's an eros, there's, there's a joy and an ecstasy and a passion offering himself as a man, as a human person, on behalf of the whole world, through suffering, through a bloody, broken, mangled mess in his body on the cross. Agape is what kept Christ on the cross. Because remember, he's God. He could have jumped off if he ever wanted to, right? He didn't. Agape is the sacrificial aspect where love remains literally, think of his heart, his arms are nailed like he's God. He could have moved them. He didn't. He remained open. Agape, I remain open. Hear me on this. Oh, this is so hard, but this is the whole point. To be a gift to another is to love without expecting to receive. To be a gift is to love without expecting to receive. Your love, if you offer yourself in love to another, it is eternal and it affects reality for the rest of eternity, regardless of the other receives it. But the way that we can fully offer this love, right, is when there's a mutual submission, a mutual receptivity on both parties. But if you offer yourself in love to those around you and it's denied, I just wanna make that clear, that doesn't lessen the, the offering or the gift. You are no less because of it. Love is still love is still love. You are free to offer. There's the freedom on the other to receive, right? Again, these are more words, but I'm trying to get to the point of switch with me from the Song of Songs. We're going to go to the book of Tobit. Y'all, the Song of Songs is really, really beautiful. It's really, really beautiful. Please, please, please go read it. Uh, it's very, <laughs> it's really beautiful. They have all these weird metaphors like your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep walking down the hills. And you're like, what? I know. But he's saying like the point of all these what we think are weird metaphors is that when you look at something and you're so excited about it, you're trying to find ways to explain it to people. Like ask someone why they're in love. I mean, sorry, but I'm thinking of Buddy the Elf. And he like comes to him and he's like, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. Like if you ask him to put words to it, it'd be like, I mean... Well, actually, he tried. Remember? This is the worst analogy, y'all, but I'm sorry. It's what's going on in my mind. And he's like, I mean, when you talk to me, like, I get all excited, and, and I can't think of what's, you know, like, he's, like, mumbling on his words. We can't put words to it because it's a mystery. This love poetry, the Song of Songs, is trying to put words, so they're looking to the gifts of creation from their time period of things that were very good, right, to explain a deeper reality. That's what all the love poems of time have always done, and they always fall short but they point us forward because they're a sign pointing us forward, right? That little bitty sign of a poem. Now I want you to understand the deepest, most real sign we have is the physical love between man and woman into the gift of their bodies. He says that our bodies, he calls it the prophetism of the body. 
our bodies and how we offer them can serve as, as a hearkening call, a prophet. A prophet speaks truth to the world, right? How we choose to offer the gifts of our bodies can speak truth to the world. Or it can speak mockery, right? Use, abuse, manipulation. Or it can speak love. Service, sacrificial, passionate, it's really good, but all integrated together, love. If you read the book of Tobit, so I was obsessed with this book because the girl's name is Sarah, and I was like, it's perfect, you know, excited. then you keep reading it, and so Sarah didn't exactly have the happiest of experiences, so she got married seven times, and on her wedding night, each time before she and her husband came together, her husband would drop dead. I didn't write the book, it's in the book, read it, it's in the Old Testament, book of Tobit. So Tobias is her nearest, you know, kinsman down the line, and this archangel, finds Tobias, whose father had just gone blind, and he takes Tobias on this journey to Sarah. At a certain point on the journey, he's like, hey, Sarah is in need of a husband. You have a right to marry her. You should marry her. And I'm totally paraphrasing, but Tobias is like, no. Like, I've heard about her. Everybody dies when they marry her. Like, I'm not gonna marry her. Okay. <laughs> so, Raphael's like, okay, but... This is a direct quote of Raphael from scripture. He says, but perhaps she was prepared for you from all eternity. I know. Perhaps she was prepared for you from all eternity, which makes her not just a gift, but a call by which if he enters into this union, Tobias then becomes the man he is called to be and how he is called to love Sarah and vice versa. Does that make sense? And then it's fun. It's like, and she was sensible and brave and beautiful. And then he's like, I suppose you'll have many children by her. You should marry her. And then he does. But that's not where it stops. It's not this happy-go-lucky story. What it acknowledges in the book is there is this demon named Asmodeus that it says was in love with Sarah. Um, and different scholars have looked at this as like sort of the spiritual warfare against the family and specifically against marriage that if you can make man and woman too afraid to approach each other, oh my gosh, does that sound familiar, right? If you can make man and woman too afraid to approach each other, then you can stop in some way the greatest sign that was created in the universe by God himself to image God's love in the world. The enemy wants nothing more than to keep the world from seeing the love of God. He does this by attacking the family at the core which is the marriage, right? This is still happening today. This is still relevant. It doesn't look the same. Tobias had to take a fish and there's this whole thing and he had to burn incense and make an offering. Hello, the priesthood though, like universal priesthood too in the family and oh, there's so many great talks on this. Can't give them all right now. But what they do do is they don't just get married and they're like, woohoo, he survived, like way to go. No, that had already happened. They got married the guys were alive, and then boom, dead. The first thing they do, Tobias follows the word of God given to him through the archangel Raphael, who's also the archangel of healing. And then he says, sister, get up and let us pray. And I'm going to read to you the prayer. Wait, so Sarah, you're saying like, like sexuality and sex and marriage, it's like, holy and you can like 
pray and stuff? And I'm like, yes, that's the whole point. In Romans 12, it says, right, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Prayer is a sacrifice. Okay, there's so many distinctions, but to keep this simple, God is God is God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's not a sexual being. I'm not talking sex when I'm talking about God, right? He's pure spirit. He's divine. He's the creator. But the way in which he created us as human beings, that we can most clearly see it in our tangible nature that we're body and soul, is in and through the gift of our bodies, right? Our marriage on this side of heaven, right, human beings, is the sign through the family that points to what God looks like. But you don't, you can't like flip the image, right? And say, well, then the Trinity, then like we appropriate all these things to ourselves. I'm still a human person, right? But the grace of God allows me to love with a divine love, but I remain human. Does that make sense? But he wants to make us like himself. The more we are perfected in love, the more we become like God, but not by ever obliterating my nature as a human being, right? Prayer is not something that should be separate from the marital embrace from marriage, from intimacy. This is one of the readings that you can have in a Catholic wedding for the first reading, is the prayer from the book of Tobit. Because what John Paul II says, I'm gonna read it to you, but what John Paul II says, and this is really important, so I want you to go, boop, to where it says Tobiah and Sarah. Tobiah and Sarah end their prayer with the following words. Call down your mercy on me and on her and allow us to live together to a happy old age. We can admit on the basis of the context that they have before their eyes the prospect of persevering in their union to the end of their days, a prospect that opens up before them with a trial of life and death already during their wedding night. In other words, he's like, it's their wedding night and they're already having to decide, like, you might die. Why? Because every other guy died. So, like, this is, statistically speaking, like, don't look good for you, Tobias. At the same time, they see with a glance of faith the sanctity of this vocation in which through the unity of the two built upon the mutual truth of the language of the body, they must respond to the call of God himself, which is contained in the mystery of the beginning. As in marriage, sexual intimacy, the very heart of marriage is where man and woman get to go back and they can choose to respond or to deny to the call of God himself to love like he loves in how they love each other in and through the gift of their bodies in this present time. This is why they ask, call down your mercy on me and on her. The spouses in the song of song with ardent words declare to each other their human love. The newlyweds, Tobias and Sarah, in the book of Tobit ask God that they be able to respond to love. They're asking him to give them the strength to love each other as they've been called to love. Both the one and the other find their place in what constitutes the sacramental sign of marriage. Both the one and the other share in forming this sign. It's only together, y'all. This is the whole point. It's not man at war with woman, woman at war with man. That's the result of the fall. If you were called to marriage, by responding to the gift of that call, that responsibility, that task, when you fight for love, it's not just a victory for love. It's not just a victory for your marriage. It's not just a victory for your family. It's a victory for the kingdom of God. Do you understand? The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is now. It is in and through the gift of each of our personal vocations. How we are called to love. Our vocation is to love. 
online, they didn't publish the stuff that John Paul II wrote. They published what he said. So what he wrote, which is important, is he said, Tobias and Sarah had to face the very test of death on their wedding night, which is like the last night you want anyone to have to face that, right? And he says that it's not just the, the face of death for Tobias because he might die because all the other guys died. He's saying, imagine the heart of Sarah if he dies, right? The eighth time. They both would experience a death. There's a physical death and there's an emotional death. And then you can think of the prefigurement, Christ on the cross. There's a physical death of Christ, the new Adam. And there's a spiritual death of, I say spiritual death, not in the sin sense, but in the emotional sense of a sword piercing your heart of Our Lady who is the new Eve. Union is beautiful. Love is beautiful. Remember, it looks like that, which has the wounds of Christ on hands and heart and feet, right? It does not run from suffering. We become who we are called to be in and through the gift of love. And love looks like the cross that gets us to the resurrection. It's a both and, right? The prayer that they pray together, that you can choose if you want to, with a lot of other options, but I just love this prayer. He says, notice he calls her sister. Tobias says to Sarah, sister, get up and let us pray and implore our Lord that he may grant us mercy and safety. And they begin to say, blessed are you, O God of our fathers, and blessed be your holy and glorious name forever. Let the heavens and all your creatures bless you. You made Adam and gave him Eve, his wife, as a helper and support. From them, the race of mankind has sprung. You said it is not good that the man should be alone. Let us make a helper for him like himself. And now, O Lord, I am not taking this sister of mine because of lust, but with sincerity. Grant that I may find mercy and may grow old together with her. And they both said, Amen, Amen. Then they both went to sleep for the night. I am not taking this sister of mine because of lust, but with sincerity. I think we talked about this in the first talk, but at a, a wedding several years ago for one of my friends, the priest broke down the word sincerity. Sincere, without wax. They have the marble statues. If you messed up, you could put wax on it to kind of hide it. To see what the statue looked like without the wax, they take it outside so the, max, the wax would melt off, right? Then you could see it as it was without wax in its true authentic form. He's saying, I am taking my sister in humanity, this woman, not out of lust, which is to use her, but with sincerity, that she is a gift. And John Paul II, all these audiences, what they're about, he's like, it's not that the man expresses himself to the father, and then Sarah expresses herself to the father. He's saying, this is where we see what the body is supposed to express in verbal form. At the altar, man and woman give their I do through their words, Right? Then he's saying in the marriage by the man and woman, they live that out through the gift of their bodies. There is a language they are speaking through their bodies, through marital intimacy, through the physical form. You need both, right? But he's saying here that their voices are in unison, John Paul II says. They are praying together. It's not one voice, the other voice. It's together, brother and sister in humanity, man and woman as it was intended in the beginning, Offer their hearts to the Lord in preparation to offer their bodies to the Lord. Does that make sense? Your spirit, your soul, your person pulls forward the gifts of your body to the Lord.
Sex is supposed to be holy. Sex is holy, right? It is, period, done. That's how God made it. The way that we respect that and we reverence that gift, that's what the vows are for. Vows. Think about sex as like this really, really, really beautiful but very, very heavy diamond. Just going to like throw that out to anybody? No. Vows are the only thing strong enough to hold the weight of the beauty and the depth of what sex is, which is two human beings by way of their freedom, choosing to give the gift of themselves, which involves eternal realities, body and soul, to another, with an openness that from that offering, a whole nother human person can come into existence, that they can co-create with God himself. That it's not that God snaps his fingers, and it's not that God has nothing to do with it. It's that he says, I'm with you in this very holy gift of how I created you through love. You were made from love for love. And as you enter this journey, you too with me, body and soul, right? We can create another human being that will live forever. What? No other creature can do that. Moving on, because I have to. Um, by the way, Sarah's dad comes in and he's like, hey, tells his wife, like, go make sure, like, look, I just, <laughs> he's like, I, I dug a hole in the ground in case he died. Can you just go check on them and see if he's still alive? <laughs> Y'all, scripture's funny too. God is really funny. So she goes in and she's like, wait, he's still alive. They're sleeping. Like, I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it worked out. Okay. But they had to go through that test. So, um, okay, we have about 15 minutes left, so I'm trying to fit this in, but understanding the gift of the Song of Songs in this beautiful love poem, which is truly a duet between man and woman, where man sees with fascination and admiration the gift of the woman, and this is not just because her spirit's really pretty and she's really cool, like, it involves the gift of her body. You can say that. She's a gift. But the body's not disconnected from the person, right? That's how we truly reverence another, is the body is not disconnected from the person. And it's not just parts of her body. It's her whole person, right? As men and women, we struggle differently with purity. But truly, like, we always have to assimilate the other. It's not what you can do for me. It's not how I feel when you're with me. Like, all those things are nice, and they can be there, and they can be fun, and butterflies are cute, and, like, whatever. I really think they're great. I love it, right? But don't stop there. Get to know the person, right? Man and woman, we both were created. Y'all, everyone in front of me is a testament to that there was a moment of love between a man and woman. Like, I'm really serious about that. I think about that sometimes. Like, I'm looking out at you. There's like 60, 70 of you or something. That tells me that there's like 60 to 70 moments in the existence of the world, like I can count guaranteed right now that like, Love, boom, regardless of the imperfection of our parents, okay? God was present, so love was present. You were not an accident. I don't care what your beginnings looked like. You were intended by God, the creator of the universe, to exist at this time and place in history for a very unique purpose that only you can fulfill. But he could care less about what you can do for the kingdom if you don't ever realize how much he loves you and that he loved you into existence itself. You are loved, period. We have to move from that space of love. 
Otherwise, we're striving because we think we have to please him and make him happy. And he's like, I'm God. Like, I can figure that out. I don't need you to do anything. I want to give you this gift of love that you can become the full gift of who you are by virtue of offering yourself as a gift. But first, you have to receive the love from God. So, the church is the only, at this point, um, the 1930s, there was this conference, the Lambeth Conference, where different Christian churches started to um, decide that they would approve contraception in certain circumstances, which is very difficult to do, as you can see now, because that's a sliding scale, and now it's just approved for everything, except in the Catholic Church. The world was screaming at the Catholic Church, and so they started a commission, and they studied this for years, and they had lay people, married people, bishops, priests, and they disagreed on if the church should change its teaching or not. And Pope Paul VI, who was canonized like three weeks ago, um, he wrote a document called Humana Vitae, taking all of this, and he said, by virtue of the Holy Spirit and the responsibility I have been given as the Pope of the universal church, which really means he's the servant of the servants of God, in a sense. He said, I cannot change the teaching if I, if I, to change the teaching of the church in terms of contraception is to go against the fullness of what the creator has intended for us in being man and woman. Y'all, you can read these quotes, but I realize, like, it's just going to make your brain swim with things, and I'm just going to tell you what it says. So I, I teach a system, I'm a practitioner with a system called Create and Model. It's a form of fertility awareness. In short, it means that I teach women how to chart their cycles. Every woman has a cycle. You learn this in biology class, but just to review. And so a woman at times is fertile, and at other times she's infertile. And there's certain things she can notice just by going to the bathroom and looking at the tissue to know if she's fertile or infertile. Newsflash, men are always fertile. Cool. Okay, simple. So put them together. That means as a couple, as a couple, then at times the couple is fertile, and at times the couple is infertile. Simply put... If God wanted it to be that every single time a man and woman came together in intimacy that they had a child, he could have made it that both man and woman were always fertile. I'm really simplifying this. But he didn't. In the nature of man, he made it such that he is always fertile. In the nature of woman, he made it so that she is sometimes fertile or infertile. What does that mean? That means that man and woman have the capacity because they are rational creatures to understand this cycle and to together, by virtue of their freedom and their will as an expression of their love, to choose if they would come together in an intimate way, right, in times of fertility or in times of infertility. It is okay, the church says, if a couple discerns that it is not, um, there's different reasons she gives, but if it's not healthy, meaning like maybe the husband just lost his job, um, maybe the wife is really sick, maybe some of the children are really sick, that it's okay if the couple chooses to only then come together in sexual intimacy in times of infertility because they need to space how many children they're having, right? But just by that same token, then a couple can choose with their freedom to say, oh, we want to have a baby. Hmm, we should use times of fertility, right? Um, some people would say that the church is teaching that contraception is wrong because it's not natural. The church is not saying, like, the church is not like, go green, everyone. Like, I mean, 
Okay, in a sense, if you read certain documents, she, Laudato Si is really all about the environment. It's really cool. Pope Francis wrote it. You can read it. But that's not why she says is the actual reason. When she says it's not natural, go deeper with me. She says in terms of the human person and the nature of what it means to be human, what contraception does, and um, one day I will publish my dissertation. If you're really that interested, you can read it. It's all about this. But... What contraception does is it takes the woman's cycle and it shuts it down. So now woman, if it works, which, anyway, there's so many mechanisms and it doesn't always work. Um, woman is now always infertile, quote, always infertile. It's not healthy biologically. I have other options for you, but whatever. Um, but in an ethical sense, in a moral sense, in a philosophical sense, what John Paul II is saying is that is a disservice to the human person. Right? That is not respecting a woman in her totality. John Paul II is one of the biggest champions of women and defending her dignity. Because he's the one that's like, wait a second. That would be as if, and I'm sorry this is really simplistic, but it's the easiest way to explain it. Imagine, right, like let's just say I get married one day and I'm like walking down the aisle and um, my husband is like, oh, Sarah, like you look beautiful, but like your nose, like could you like do something about that? Okay, first of all. Yeah, I wouldn't marry him, but, you know. Um, no, like, he would be saying, in essence, like, could you fix this piece of yourself? It's not enough. It's not whatever you want to fill in the blank. So why, as a culture and as a society, you know, just think about this in a spiritual sense, though. If one of the greatest ways that man and woman image to the world, God and his existence and love, is by virtue of the creation of another human being, where do you think the enemy will attack but in the womb of woman? Do you know how many drugs are out there for contraception? It's a multi-million dollar industry. I really can't step off my soapbox because I won't step off of it for 20 more minutes. But in a spiritual sense, just a spiritual sense, go back to Genesis 3.15. It says that the enemy and the woman would be at war. Who is she standing on, right? She's... This is Our Lady Guadalupe. Why can she stand on the head of the serpent? Why Guadalupe, like, which means crush the head of the serpent. Why can she teach us how to crush the head of the serpent? Because within her womb, the black bow, for the people of the time and the culture, it meant that she was pregnant because God himself lives within her. How did God enter the world? Enter through the womb of a woman. Every time a woman conceives a child, it is an echo of the incarnation, which is where good defeated evil forever, Right? connected with the Paschal Mystery. So too, contraception, right? It's this test of man and woman. Does this mean that people who are taking contraception are bad people? I'm not saying that. I'm saying the reason why the church will never approve of contraception is because she says the only thing in a philosophical sense, an ethical sense, in a moral sense, that is just to the human person is love. As a woman and as a man, you deserve to be loved in your totality. So like male contraception, female contraception, it's all not considered okay. Because if I'm offering a full gift of myself, this is not apart from, around, or divorced from my fertility. It is in and through the gift of my body, which as a man includes your fertility, and as a woman includes your fertility. What this means is that you have to use your reason to come to know your cycle, to come to know when you're fertile and infertile, but he says that the test that this produces, this test of love, 
It allows man and woman, instead of where, if I'm contracepting over here, right? Sex because commonplace. You can have it with whomever you want, whenever you want it, and there's no responsibility. Hashtag sexual revolution. Does that really make everyone happy? Does the world seem like it's really happy as a fruit of that? Mm -mm. Right? If it becomes commonplace, we lose the reverence for the mystery. And then we just start to get concerned with all the biological stimuli, the pleasure. We forget the person. Whereas over here, if you're not contracepting and you have to come to know the fertility, then that means sometimes you're going to really desire your husband or your wife and you can't come together in an intimate way. And that's hard. But then you realize, but they're a human person. Oh, my gosh. Like, I can love her in all these other ways, too. What? Yeah. Which is why, to kind of get to the point where you are right now, since I don't think any of you in the room are married. Sorry if you are. I mean, not sorry, but you know what I mean. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Dating is your preparation, you guys. The church is a church of the both and. She is a church of feasting and fasting. This is very connected to that reality. So that if you were fasting in a physical way with your spouse from the gift that you desire, not for forever, right? The time that you have to for that time, which naturally happens, by the way, if you have kids or if you get sick, right? You have to sacrifice for the other through your will. Love is not just your sexual organs. It's including that, but it's bigger than that. It's a totality. If you fast from it for a time, then hello, you start to reverence and appreciate the gift of what it actually is. Hence, there's a feasting. And this is me talking to so many couples who've gotten married or who've been married for 40 years. It's real. Like, when you can't have something all the time, right, you start to appreciate it and you enjoy it even more. If I eat ice cream every single day for the rest of my life, I will be so sick, right? Duh. But if I have it every now and then, then like, I mean, this is a dumb example. It's not the same. But ice cream, like it's fun. Great. If you can have it. Sorry if you're lactose intolerant. That's a distraction. Do you see what I'm saying though, y'all? Like, don't take yourself so seriously. God wants you to laugh at this. He wants you to see sex as a gift. He wants you to see yourself as a gift. What I'm trying to say is do not run from the cross. He is saying that the ways that you're excited about people of the opposite sex, the ways that you decide to value yourself to someone one day, like there will be moments where it will be really difficult. And they call this natural family planning. I'm not saying it's easy. It's not. And it's not like the band-aid to every problem. But it requires that couples communicate every month about do we feel called to have a child. Communication is the key to any good marriage. If you shut that out, it can't move forward. It stagnates, right? This requires in and through the gift of my bodies right, like all of our bodies, right, in marriage that you communicate with your words so that in freedom you can communicate the gift of your bodies in love. The question is one of love. The bottom of page five, since this is the last talk in TOB, it says, what is the spousal meaning of the body? The spousal meaning of the body, all the key to understand this is that I, as a human person, you as a human person, you were created from love for love. That your freedom exists for the sake of love, to be offered in love. And the spousal meaning means that I was created to be a gift. That you were created to be a gift. You were created for self-gift. By possessing the gift of yourself, that's the call right now. If you can better possess yourself now, it'll prepare you for the future. 
and I want to make it very clear that marriage is messy. You are not getting married because you want to get something perfect. Like, nothing in your life is going to be perfect. Heaven's going to be perfect, but we're trying to get there. And this is the way in which God calls each of us. So however you were called to love, that's the question. The quote that you all love that I just repeated because everyone kept asking me for it is at the bottom. Do not be dismayed if love sometimes follows tortuous ways. Grace has the power to make straight the paths of human love. So remember, in review, it's a both and. There's a wedding feast at Cana, and there's a wedding feast at the cross. Both. Both. There's arrows. There's eros, the passion, and there's agape, the sacrifice. You want both. Um, I was talking to a friend a few nights ago. He's now a Benedictine monk, and his name is Brother Cashin, and we used to teach theology of the body together, and I haven't seen him for like a year and a half. It was really fun to catch up. And we were talking about the gift of vows, because he's taking his solemn vows in July. And he was sharing about the gift of his vocation in this call which for him is a vow of celibacy, poverty, right? And he'll be ordained a priest at a certain time in this. And he said, um, God knew what I needed. I, uniquely as who I am, needed a spiritual father to tell me when to pray. I needed a rule of life to order my day. He's like, that's what I need to get to heaven, and I know it. I know it in the depths of my being. The vows are what give to us, y'all, the path like the highway by which we're going to travel to heaven, to the heart of the Father. That's our vocation. Um, two resources and then a closing story. Number one, the song is called Set Me as a Seal. Shelly reminded me by Matt Marr, Set Me as a Seal. I love it. It's a duet. It's really beautiful. Um, another book, this is a children's book that I wanted to read to you, but I didn't because I didn't have time and I couldn't find it because I gave them all away. It's a children's book that I think is meant for adults and children. It's called The Boy Who Became Pope. It's a beautiful story with beautiful illustrations all about John Paul II. And it takes you through the, the life of John Paul II and the mom asks him this question. She died when John Paul II was very young. And he remembered the question in all the big moments in his life. And the question was always this, who do you love most? So my question to you is this, who do you love most? If you can answer that question, then you will know to whom and how and when and where God is calling you. Take that to prayer. Who do you love most? God will call you to the one whom he's created for you if you're called to marriage. You find him by pursuing God. And then you open your eyes and you look around you and you be about what's in front of you. Right? Um, last story. So if you've come to these talks, you've heard about my friend Emily. Um, and she passed away last Monday evening. So she is the one who had brain cancer. And she, she's my age. She's a month older than I am. So she's 29. And she has been married for a little over two years. And she was diagnosed with this brain cancer in February. So it was eight months. Really fast. Her funeral was on Tuesday, and her husband, Antonio, is the one whom she asked to share the words of remembrance. The whole talk, y'all, like, that's great. This is really what I wanted to get to. This is what I want you to take away, because this is like the living it out. 
their marriage is beautiful. Their marriage is a sign to the whole world of what God's love looks like. Their marriage had some really beautiful moments of where it felt great. And their marriage, especially in the last eight months, had mostly moments that did not feel great. Right? The sign and the witness that their marriage was to me and so many other people, and to all of you listening to this here, listening to this on the podcast, right, is real. I don't care what books we write. I don't care what ideas we can come up with. The reality is when a man and woman come together and offer themselves in love in and through the gift of sacrifice, the world is forever changed for good, for eternity, by love itself, in and through the gift of their love. And he's a total introvert and a wonderful man, and she asked him to share the words of remembrance, and he did it, and it was really beautiful. And I wanted to share with you what he said. Um, it's really short. It was one of the simplest words of remembrance I've heard, but I, this whole series is encapsulated, in my opinion, in this. So ask Emily for her prayers, because she is very, in a very real way, living the communion of saints right now, and I know she's praying for us. Um, and just know, like, this is what sanctity looks like. It looks like the both and, Right? So he said, most of you need no words of remembrance from me to recall the profound love Emily had on everyone she encountered. Most of you know how close she was to God and how much of a difference that made in her love for people and life and food, fine things, the French Quarter in New Orleans. I really just want to share two of the many thoughts I've had over the past eight months. I feel these two things are important for you to hear because I believe they really encapsulate Emily's life, especially the last eight months. Number one. True love always acts in the darkness of suffering. Always. Suffering, number two, suffering unveils true love. These two things, love and suffering, are reciprocal, dynamic. Emily's entire life involved these two things. As her husband, I know the suffering she endured in her life, and yet she was still full of love. You could think of it as her hiding from her suffering. She wasn't hiding. She was loving through her suffering. I want to leave you with a quote that supports the coexistence of love and suffering. It's from St. Paul of the Cross, and he says, Love is a unifying virtue which takes upon itself the torments of its beloved Lord. It is a fire reaching through to the inmost soul. It transforms the lover into the one loved. More deeply, love intermingles with grief and grief with love. And a certain blending of love and grief occurs. They become so united that we can no longer distinguish love from grief, nor grief from love. Thus the loving heart rejoices in its sorrow and exalts its grieving love. And his last line to us was, Emily was never more beautiful than she was during her last days. Y'all, all the things we get distracted with, all the little concerns... It's not that they're not important to the Lord. But at the end of the day, it's really, really simple. Your vocation is to love. No, you're not married yet. Your life is therefore not a waste. It means that today, the Lord is calling you to love in a way unique to where you are in life as a student. If you are faithful to that, then when you are called to the vocation to love, if you're called to marriage or whatever vows you're called to, you will be able to be faithful to it because you've learned how to say no and yes now. I invite you to pray with that that I just shared. 
that true love always responds and requires to act in suffering and that suffering unveils true love. We were made for love. Do not be afraid of it. Do not run from it. Know that love himself wants to give you the grace to love like he does. It's worth the risk. It's worth the fight. So too you are worth the risk and you are worth the fight. Do not settle for less than that. For not only is human love a gift, but it's holy. And this is how he will make you into a saint. Let's close in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we thank you for the gift of being able to share as deep as we can in the time that we have on the beauty of human love. I ask, Lord, that you would just give to each of the people in this room and each of the people listening to this the grace to go into the directions that you are calling that they might go deeper with you, Lord. That this would just whet their appetite to learn more. This would whet their appetite to fall in love with you, Lord, and that they, as they would fall in love with you, they would, they would know more of who they are, the gift of who they are, and that they would be able to see with your eyes, with a gaze that is clear, that reflects your own heart, the gifts that you have put into their life and the people around them. Mother Mary, I consecrate and just pray over this room the hearts of each person, man and woman here, their vocations, um, their families, their desires, their dreams, everything, that you would pray for them as a mother and that you would present each of them to your son. As we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, and now and at the hour of our death, amen. And Pope St. John Paul II, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.